it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber, and I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Tony Maritato, a physical therapist and the founder of Total Therapy Solutions and Choose PT First. Paul and Tony dive into the biggest existential threat to the physical therapy industry, according to Tony, advice for therapists wanting to make more money, increase their value, how to pitch your practice to referring physicians and patients, building a community through Facebook groups, how to recruit therapists and create an incredible culture, and finally, how to increase the margins at your clinic. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Last time you and I spoke, we talked about marketing as communication, just being able to communicate, convey ideas, speak the same language, you know, for years. I mean, the reason why I started my first consumer-facing Facebook group was to hear the consumer's language, because I know me as the therapist in the clinic, if Thomas was coming into me and he was like, oh, Tony, my shoulder's killing me. He is going to tell me as my patient what he thinks I want to hear, almost no matter what. It's just our human nature. You know, we want to connect and we want to make relationships. So when I'm a therapist, you're a patient, I'm not getting the real story. I'm not hearing the real words. And so I created my first consumer facing Facebook group so that I could see the conversations that are happening between real people. And it's completely different than the conversation that I see in my exam room. And so as I kind of grew into that and understood that idea, I started to realize, you know, you're talking about product market fit, service market fit. I'm like, am I really delivering what the consumer wants? What are they coming to me for? And and most of the time, the disconnect there is in the language. So somebody says, well, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a physical therapist. I could have one person that thinks that means that I help people who have had a stroke. I could have a different person think, oh, that means that I massage people's backs. I could have a third person think that I help kids who have disabilities, you know, negotiate school. Like there are so many different things within the words physical therapy that I think it's just a useless word these days. And so when I'm talking to therapists, when I'm talking to patients and I'm like, hey, How do we pick the right therapist? How do we make the right choice? You have to go so much deeper. And so I think most of us as clinicians, we don't understand where we fit in the market. You know, who's the consumer that I'm serving? I can tell you today, 22 years into practice, I will treat patients who come into my clinic. I've got several right now on caseload who do not want physical therapy, but they're required to do physical therapy to get their MRI approved. I talked to a gentleman this morning. He needs to do three more sessions before he can get the approval for his MRI, which he's looking for neck surgery. So I'm not gonna talk him out of getting a cervical procedure. I'm not gonna talk him out of getting an MRI. Nothing I can do is gonna change his mind. He's gonna receive a very different therapy experience than the 19-year-old football college athlete who, you know, tore an ACL, had a reconstruction, wants to get back on the field as soon as possible, who's also going to have a very different experience 
than a 72-year-old female who wants to get back to gardening and walking her dog and playing with her grandkids. So I feel like I have a pretty good handle on where I fit in the market. My three kind of messages that I conveyed to referring physicians and to patients, not a single one of them talks about how good of a therapist I am. It's always, it's no surprise billing. So we never give anyone an invoice they don't expect. Number one. Number two, convenient parking. Like you can literally park and walk into my front door within five feet. And number three, I am never going to make you worse. I might not make you better. I might not solve your problem, but I promise you I will never make you worse. And when I'm talking to the doctors, it's I'm not going to send an angry patient back to you, you know? And so those have been my three hallmarks. Like that's what I convey to my audience for 20 years. I mean, from when we started the practice, we pretty quickly understood, oh, It's not about getting better. It's about not getting worse. It's not about getting the best service. It's about not getting a surprise $300 invoice that you didn't expect. You know, it's it's not about being the best therapist. It's about easy access to me and you can park in my front door and you can walk in. Like those are the things that my clients want, but that doesn't mean that a practice down the road is serving the same client. So yeah, product market fit, it's such a powerful element that nobody talks about, nobody dives into. I watched your interview with Jerry Durham. You know, Jerry is all about the patient care experience. He's all about incorporating the front desk into that experience. He does a great job with that. You guys had a great chat. So anybody should go back and watch that one too. I appreciate that. And Jerry's a great guy. So this idea of, you know, how you just described your three... I don't want to like, uh, you know, minimize it, but the way you just described your three market-based benefits that are relevant to you in your geographic market, let's say somebody is listening to this and they're in uh, Grapevine, Texas. I don't know. I'm making something up here. What should that exercise look like to figure out what your three differentiators might be at the local level? Yeah, I think you could do it two ways. You could do it passively. You can let the market decide what you're best at. I knew early on before I was ever a physical therapist that like what made me special and unique, why people were seeking me out was because I made the experience of therapy more enjoyable, period. I didn't make it better. I didn't do a better job. I didn't have deeper knowledge. I just turned something that they really didn't want to do into something that was more tolerable and slightly fun. So that was like my unique differentiating factor And I just let the market tell me that. I had no idea going in that that's what it was going to be. Or you can make it an intentional part of what you're doing. You know, I'm going into this market because I am going to treat this specific sliver of the population. So using me again as an example, I chose very intentionally to treat and specialize in patients who had had a total knee replacement. I knew that I had a unique something to deliver to them. I knew that I could craft a unique patient care experience that nobody else was doing. I had a different angle to it. So that was an intentional choice to say, I know there's a market there. They're not happy. They're getting hurt. They're not going to therapy. They're quitting therapy. There are surgeons who are telling their patients do not do physical therapy simply because too many patients were coming back complaining of the therapist pushed me too hard. The therapist is not listening to me, all that. I said, that's a real need and I can solve that need. So that was a market that I identified that 
I'm going to create a product that fits that market. So it can be passive. You let the market tell you what you're best at and you double down on that, or it could be active. No, there's an opportunity there and I'm intentionally going to create the product to fit into that market. It's interesting how parallel what you just described is to nearly every other industry that I've ever invested in. And what I mean by that is, is one of the common entrepreneurial myths is that you have to create something new. And you, nobody ever says that, but you hear it in the words that entrepreneurs use. They say, change the way, or they're going to change this, or you're going to change. If the word change is in there, I always, in my head, it's sort of a red flag because I'm like, hang on, <laughs> you know, innovation and entrepreneurship are two different things here. And in order to actually create something new, you don't really need to innovate. What you do need to do is kind of think about how do you make something people already do 5% easier, 5% less worse, five. I mean, the words aside here, 5% less is really the goal. If you can be 5% better or 5% less hard, there's massive opportunity there. And if we had enough time, I could name hundreds of large companies that started out by just looking at the Yelp reviews, the negative Yelp reviews of the local competitors. Yeah. So, so you posted something recently that was really interesting. And I won't read the whole LinkedIn post, but you said, many employed physical therapists tell me there's too much competition for jobs and they are stuck in crappy jobs they can't leave. And that right there, it sort of makes me smile a little bit. And I'm going to go on a little tangent here for 30 seconds. So on the tangent here, English is not my first language. <laughs> like I, My parents were immigrants to the United States. I spoke Punjabi growing up and then learned English watching the A-Team <laughs> on TV. I thought it was the coolest show in the 80s. But here's the point. English is the only language I'm aware of where entrepreneur is a verb. It is a thing that you are or are not. You know, you don't have to go down. You can scroll through LinkedIn for 10 seconds and you'll see that people list themselves as an entrepreneur or whatever. For nearly every other language on the planet, Arabic, Farsi, Mandarin, Swahili, pick any Eastern language you want, the closest literal translation to entrepreneur is actually a verb. In other words, the United States and English speakers are the, probably the subset of people on the planet that think that entrepreneurship is something you do and you are, whereas the rest of the world thinks of entrepreneurship as the way you think. And to me, that word they, whenever anybody uses the word they to blame why they couldn't get better, why something was blocking them, it's almost a, instantly a sign that it's a cop-out, that it's nobody's actually holding these PTs or OTs back. In fact, what's happened here is, is that we need to teach more entrepreneurial thinking to PTs and OTs and speech therapists. And I say this now to come off that tangent, because here in my neighborhood, so I live in Virginia, little neighborhood with, I don't know, I've never counted, but a couple hundred homes in this little neighborhood or whatever. And, you know, I've got young kids. And so you do as young kids do, and you walk around the neighborhood and let them play. And Halloween just passed, so you run into people. Turns out, I didn't know this, believe it or not, that there's a lot of PTs that actually live in this neighborhood. I had no idea. <laughs> I literally had no idea. I've lived here for years. and. um I just happened to mention your name and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I follow his content. And I was like, oh yeah, cool. Yeah, you should totally reach out. He's a nice guy. He, you know, he'll respond even if he doesn't know the answer. And, um, you know, the point is, is that what struck me was that like all these people are searching for an answer. They're looking to people like you. They're looking to blogs. They're looking to all these groups, Facebook groups for advice. 
But very few of these PTs and OTs are actually taking this entrepreneurial angle of what can I do to kind of make myself more valuable or add to my skill set. And my advice to one of these people that I was talking to as we were walking the kids around house to house was like, look, guys like Tony are just giving the info, the advice away. All you have to do is act upon it because he he's in Ohio. He doesn't know what it's like in Virginia here, but he's giving you the playbook. He's telling you, here's the technologies. You got to go do something with it. And I think, I know I'm rambling here a little bit, but as it relates to PT and OT, I guess my point is, is it's so similar to every other industry in the sense that entrepreneurial thinking is very hard to teach, but it is very easy to learn. Right. Which is probably the opposite of the, I guess, the clinical training, right? Like clinical training, I imagine, is the opposite where it's sort of like easy to teach, maybe harder to learn, yeah. I guess, because it's very prescribed. That was a long ramble, but I'm curious if that triggers anything for you. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, that's the challenge that I've seen. So the last couple of weeks, I've been really focused on this. And and before we started recording, I talked about how I kind of go through these cycles where I've got these ideas and then I kind of come full revolution around. And so talking about that, I see two different communities. I see the employed therapist, PTOTSLP. And I see what they're saying and I see their frustrations. I'm a member in a lot of different Facebook groups. One of the biggest ones, it's a group dedicated to individuals looking for alternative careers and they're trying to get out because they just don't see a positive outcome. And then on the flip side, I talk to a lot of business owners, a lot of clinicians who turned business owner who have practices and their future looks so bright and they're growing like crazy. And they're, you know, the one thing holding them back is the ability to hire a therapist. But then in the other group, the therapists feel like they can't leave jobs they don't like because there's no job opportunities out there for them. And I was like, how is this possible? We all speak the same language, or at least we say the same words, but we have such different meanings behind those words. And little by little, I tease away at it and I poke and prod and what starts to come to the surface. And it's like this in any relationship, a marriage, a friendship, an associate. It's really not the stuff that's being said. It's the underlying insecurities. It's the underlying frustrations. You feel like you're not rewarded. And so if you dig deep enough, the therapist will say, we're not paid enough. We have too many demands placed upon us. So even if there are other jobs out there, I can't take those jobs because I can't get what I need to get out of that job, you know? And the employers will say, well, I can't pay more because the insurance is going down and Medicare cuts and reimbursement declines. And I just saw a post today, a therapist who said she works a 40 hour week. She gets paid for six hours of documentation time. So I asked the question very genuinely, like, okay, so how many visits, how many units are you generating in the other 34 hours of the week that you're working? And I had shared a video years ago where I was like, look, I mean, reality is if you're a therapist that's clocking in, clocking out, you're probably clocking in. There's 15 minutes of unproductive, non-billable time that you're doing stuff. You're getting your set up and you're getting your first patient ready, but you're not billing units for the first 15 minutes. There's probably 15 minutes at the end of the day. You wrapped everything up, your patient's done, you're finishing stuff, you're not billing units. So like in those cases, I mean, if you're working a five-day week, that's five hours a week of non-billable time. And then you've got somebody who's got six hours of documentation time on top of it. It's like, we just keep chipping away. Now, 
I'm the first one to place blame on me, the business owner. It's it's my responsibility to create a profitable enough business that can afford that expense, that can afford to pay the therapist what the therapist needs, that can afford to do these things so that the therapist can perform to their highest level and their highest ability. I take full responsibility for that. And as a result, I haven't been hiring therapists because right now I don't have the business model that allows me to afford to do that. I'll have the business model at some point. I'll go back to that, but right now I don't. So I know therapists that are sitting in these toxic relationships, for lack of a better word, with employers. They feel underappreciated. They feel underpaid. They're frustrated, but they don't have the tools. They don't have the resources to say, okay, how do I lift myself out of this position? How do I move on to something bigger and better? What are the other opportunities? And truthfully, larger employers, which is mostly what we're talking about, you know, they don't have the personal connection to the therapist. Like for me, every therapist that works for me, I know you, I know your family, I know what's going on, I know your birthday. Like it's really easy for me to provide an exceptional experience to a new hire therapist. I know I'm going to lose money for six months. I hope to break even in nine months. I'm not even thinking of a profit before a year. You know, like that's me. But if I'm a huge employer with thousands and thousands of employees under my umbrella, none of that exists. So it's like the therapist wants this personal connection. They want happy hours. They want parties. Big employers aren't in the business of providing that. So we're saying words that have very different meanings and we start to tie in these emotions and these frustrations that I really think we need to have conversation about this. If both parties came to the table and talked, I think a lot of people would feel a lot better. A lot of these issues would be resolved because I've never met a lazy therapist. I've never met a private practice owner who doesn't want to provide the best experience to the staff that they've hired. So it's like both sides have the best of intentions, but we're not communicating in words that we understand. So I, I, I do think there's a lot of friction there. And I've said, I think the biggest existential threat to the profession is not declining reimbursement. We can always deal with declining reimbursement. It's this lack of communication and people leaving the workforce, the brain drain, the smartest, the best, the most passionate therapists who can't fulfill that passion, they're the ones who are leaving and they're not getting replaced because students are like 250,000 in student loans, or I could take a job in tech. (laughs) I'm going to go to tech, you know? So that's where I think the threat to the profession is. And ultimately it goes back to, okay, so we lose clinicians We still have sick patients. We still have people that need care. So we need to find alternative solutions for them. That's where we move into technology. We move into triaging with AI. We move into these other things and training less skilled workers. Maybe I can't bill insurance, but if I have a patient with a $50 copay who needs therapy and they can't find therapists right now in my city, which is a small town, it's a three to four week wait to get in for an initial evaluation. If you just had a knee replacement, you need to be seen today, tomorrow. So we're gonna see more lower level non-licensed technicians stepping into the role with the help of either virtual or telehealth clinicians that are supervising those. 
And from a dollar cost perspective, I mean, it is a more affordable solution for a lot of the low hanging fruit in the profession. I think I know what you're going to say, but let me ask the question anyway. So what I think you're talking about is essentially this idea. So you said something there that I think is really unique in the sense that you said it was your responsibility to create a practice that could pay those fair wages and that sort of stuff. That to me, you know, in my limited experience seems to be (laughs) absurdly rare with the practice owners I have talked to in the past. And I'm not passing any judgment, but the reality is, is that, you know, I think a lot of practice owners may not say this publicly, but, you know, through their actions and stuff like that, you can kind of see that they're sort of treating those PTs that they employ as a resource. So I guess you mentioned Jerry Durham's name. So we were riffing on this idea a couple, I guess it must've been a week or two ago, this idea of, you know, in the tech sector, uh, about 15 years ago, I co-founded this thing called 500 Startups. And the point is, is that within that entity of where we invest in lots of companies and stuff like that, we created a sub-entity that we call the 500 Incubator. And what it was, was this idea that was designed to fill what we believe to be a gap in the industry. The gap in the industry is, is that if you're ultra high growth, all you need is money and investors to get out of the way. And on the flip side, if you can't get an inch off the ground, nobody's investor money is going to help you. But in the middle, there was a gap where you had people that were able to get a company an inch or two, proverbially off the ground. And we needed to provide a hardcore, highly focused 12-week boots on the ground street MBA. And I sort of called it our the modern MBA for high growth companies, 12 week, high intensity sort of uh, instruction with enough control over the underlying companies to make sure they show up and do something with it. And some of the largest companies by valuation and revenue now have come from programs like that. And I was kicking this idea with Jerry a couple of weeks ago of like, I wonder what that would look like for PTs, you know, like, in other words, what you're describing here. I think has reflects what I've seen too, which is it seems to be this zero-sum conversation between practice owners and the therapists that work for them, you know, with one side saying, you don't pay me enough, and the other side saying, I don't have enough to pay you. <laughs> when the truth is, is that here you are, for example, showing people that technology can be used to drive more traffic, to uh, establish your niche, to go deeper into that niche and all this stuff. So I guess the inarticulate sort of question. I think I know what you're going to say, but does that, should something like that exist? Should there be sort of like a PT accelerator where it seems to me there's not a lot of capital in this industry. You either self, you know, start your business, self-fund your business. And if you're lucky and you, you know, step one, start something, step two, dot, 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 step three, private equity rolls you up, (laughs) you know, but it seems to me like there could be room in the market here for a PT accelerator where Somebody injects 50 or 100K into the company, buys a couple percent of control just to keep everybody honest, throws them through 12 weeks of hardcore virtual training, implements all the systems, the, you know, all that, and then gets out of the way. Let me pause there. What's your gut reaction? You can poke holes in it. Tell me it's a horrible idea. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think for a very small demographic, yeah, I think it'd be awesome. Like you take somebody like me, you take somebody like Jerry, you take Justin Stiver down in Florida, you put us in something like that, like, forget it, we're going to take off. There's nothing that's going to stop us. And I think most of us figured out or found a way to find something like that. I had shared the concept years ago where I was like, look, you know, it, it was a hard transition for me. I read E-Myth, revisited. I read, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read 
good to great. I read all those books and I was like, okay, I've got this idea. This is the model. This is the best patient care experience we can deliver. Now I'm going to hire therapists and I'm going to plug them into that model. And that completely fell apart. Like there was no possible way I could tell them what to do, even if I believed I had a better way. I think it was either Warren Buffett or Munger who basically said, even when you know somebody's going to make a mistake, you have to let them make the mistake. You know, my kids, they're going to touch the outlet. I know they're going to get shocked. I hope they're not going to die, but I got to let them touch the outlet to learn their lesson, right? That's how we learn. So I say all of that because when I come back to it, I'm like, I know a lot of therapists. My wife is a great example. She's an amazing clinician, a hundred times better than me. She doesn't want to learn how to run a business. She doesn't want to learn how to market. She doesn't want to learn sales. She doesn't want to learn any of the things that a typical employer would want her to learn that would allow the employer to make more money to, in exchange, pay her more money. That's not what she wants. And that's not what she's great at. It would be like you trying to convince me to be an accountant because I would save on taxes. I don't want to do that. I don't care. I can make more money and pay the extra taxes, right? So with all of that, I realized years ago, I was like, okay, I can't make them do what I want them to do, even if I know that this is going to make us all more money and a better practice. So it's my responsibility to flip the switch and to say... The patient is not my customer anymore. Once I moved from treating therapist to business owner, the patient is not my customer anymore. The clinician is my customer. The better I serve the clinician, the better the clinician serves the consumer who is the customer. So how do I do that? How do I find ways not to make them salespeople, not to make them do all the things that they don't want to do? And even, and I shared this publicly I hear so many people and no disrespect to anyone, but they're like, I've got this incentive program and we do profit sharing and we do all all this stuff. And I tested it for years. I mean, you know, people that I know, I've tested it with all those people. I've never to this day met a therapist that was a good therapist who enjoyed what he or she was doing, who did a better job because they earned a $5,000 commission. None of them were holding back trying to get that commission, you know? And so... I realized, I was like, look, you and I sit down, what is a fair wage? What makes you feel appreciated? What makes you feel that I value you and your time? It's this number. Awesome. This is what I need to do to make that number. And then me as the business owner make the decision, can I do that? And I've employed therapists for years, for five, six years. Therapists that lose me money on every single patient visit, but I employ them for a reason because they add an element to my business that improves the entire business. I've got therapists that produce tons of money for both of us and they're well rewarded, but I also have therapists that lose me money, but they improve my presence in the community. So, you know, long way to say like, it's my responsibility to build a platform for the therapist to succeed. And I know that if I want the best clinicians available, I can't pay them the amount that they deserve. That's a common saying in clinician speak, pay what you deserve or know your worth. I can't, I can't pay anyone what they deserve. But what I can do is I can provide you with a platform to build your resume, to build your knowledge base, to gain experience. I get the best years, I get the best results. And then I wish you well, and you go on to the next thing that you're going to succeed at. You know, and so that's a big part of my recruitment strategy and my value offer to the therapist 
is, you know, you're not going to make as much money as you would make somewhere else. I can give you more free time off and I can support your other passions, but I know you're only going to be here for a couple of years. So let's make the most of it. Let's go. And the term that I use, and, and we all know it, it's intrapreneur. I love to try and hire that person who sees themselves as an entrepreneur within my business. So an intrapreneur, but there's not a lot of them out there. If they're like that, they're not becoming therapists. They're becoming business owners. They're becoming other things that allow them to feed that passion of theirs. The people who become therapists want to be therapists. As much as I try to push them past it, <laughs> they always want to go back. They just want to treat patients because that's what they love and that's what they do best. My job is to make it so they can do it and we can all do it profitably. You're such a humble guy that I could probably pay you all the compliments in the world and you'd probably not take them anyway, but there's a compliment in there somewhere. But you know, it's fascinating. You said something very casually that I think very few people, very few other practice owners I've ever met actually believe in. You said, well, I'm going to sit down with the therapist and ask what they need and I'm going to tell you whether I can give it to you or not. That is one of those simple statements that anybody could uh, replicate, but very few actually do. In fact, it's interesting. So that's one of your tactics. I think it's really fascinating. You mentioned Justin Stiver in one of our previous episodes. He talked about this idea where, you know, he, I think they, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he bought some residential pieces of property. And then essentially, I'll just paraphrase here, that perk of having a free place to stay gave him a much larger uh, applicant pool, which then statistically speaking, gives him access to better candidates, you know, more candidates you can then filter through. And it allows him to then bring in the right people and go down that path and get goodwill and good employees and all that. One of our other clients, I, I don't have his permission to use his name yet, I, just because I haven't asked him, that, but this rings a bell. To your point about entrepreneurship, he is pretty aggressive about his growth. He's, you know, down in the South somewhere. Anyway, point is, you know, as he's buying new practices or existing practices and taking them over, he's having these conversations like you you described with new employees, he's having those with existing employees on a regular basis, figuring out which of his employees are entrepreneurially minded. And then as those new practices, as he acquires them, as they come online, he's incentivizing them with clinic director level positions that are financially geared to align incentives. And so there's probably more and more examples of, that, of this that, you know, again, things that you take for granted and others take for granted that I think that when people really listen and hear these things, they're not groundbreaking. They're not. I just think that a lot of PTs I've talked to, you know, when they talk about these same gripes and concerns that you're talking about or that you're sharing, you know, that there's not, that the jobs aren't great and the money's not great and all that. I think there's this idea in their head that people like you and Justin and all these other practice owners are somehow smarter than everybody else. When in fact, if they just listen to what you're talking about, you're talking about very simple ideas, respectfully, that anybody can copy. Like you're not hiding right. the information. It's not like you know something that other people don't, but people just don't want to do the work sometimes, you know? And I think it's hard, you know, I, again, I go back to, I'm like, I was smart before I'm smart now, smart enough. Why didn't I realize this before? Like, what was the thing that flipped the switch? Where... I'm one of those guys that I start working on a project and I get frustrated and I can't figure it out. It's something in the garage or something in a car or whatever. I stop, I go, I do something else, I sleep. I might go weeks before I come back to this project. It might be a tech thing, a coding thing, whatever. 
And then all of a sudden it snaps and I get the idea. I'm like, oh, why didn't I see that before? You know, and this is very similar. It's like, we're all so busy. We're in the routine. We're hustling and bustling and doing all this stuff. And, and I feel like that's a big issue for the therapist. It's like, they don't have time to breathe. Even if they mm. hear about a good thing, they don't have time between patients and documentation and commitments to like go investigate and learn and understand what's going on. So yeah, it is. They're all simple concepts and they're concepts that I borrow from McDonald's and Starbucks and American Airlines and other companies that are out there that have perfected those systems. But when you're in the trenches, you can't see over that wall. It's like you're all alone. And so back to your original idea about the incubator, the accelerator, like this training program, I do think it's amazing. I think it's awesome. I think if we could produce better leaders, business leaders in the profession, we would have a happier workforce. And if we have a happier workforce, we grow exponentially because the patients mm -hmm. get better. The doctors are happier. The insurance companies, you know, learn how to work with us. Like everything gets better. I agree, by the way. And I, I'm curious, you know, for those people, those PTs that do come to you and say, Tony, I'm not getting paid enough. Or Tony, the owner of my practice doesn't value me enough. What tactical advice do you give them? I know I'm putting you on the spot there. I'm just curious yeah. what you're, I come to you and, you know, I start griping about it because I know you're on my side, right? But at some right. point you've got the same 24 hours in the day. Like, what's your advice? What should I go read? What's my best as a PT or a therapist, of course, if I want to make more money, what advice would you give me to increase my value? So I flipped the script. You know, it's no different than a patient coming to me and be like, Tony, my shoulder's killing me. What do I need to do? And I'm like, well, you know, you're not eating great. You're not sleeping great. You're not exercising. You're not doing these other things, right? So you're a therapist coming to me and you're like, I need to make more money. I'm struggling. There's no documentation time, all this stuff. I'm not appreciated. It's like, well, we can't change the outside forces, right? I have no influence over anybody else. I can only change myself. I can change myself and I can change how I react or respond to these situations. So let's first kind of lay the groundwork there. Let's acknowledge the reality that if you're this unhappy, if you're this upset, you're probably not delivering the best product or best service that you probably could, you know? So the employer is, is only seeing what you're providing, what you're delivering, and you're clearly not happy. So you're probably not giving the best of yourself. So both sides are kind of at a disadvantage here. But I generally say, where are you working? What is it that they really want? You know, let's stop and let's look at who is the decision maker. So take a hospital, for example. The CEO of the hospital does not care what you, the physical therapist, is doing or not doing. So who really is impacted by your actions? Well, it's the hiring manager, the direct report, who's the department head. Okay, what does that person want? And truthfully, not taking away from department heads or directors of rehab, please. But I will say in my experience, very limited, most of the management that I worked directly under, they just wanted me to be good enough. They didn't need me to best, be the best therapist. In fact, when I was a great therapist and I would treat a patient and deliver an exceptional patient care experience, and then that patient had to go work with a different therapist, they weren't happy. They wanted to come back to me. So I made it more difficult for everybody else if I was head and shoulders above the standard of care, but the standard of care was not my standard. It was the standard. 
So looking at that department head, it's like, what do they want? They want somebody who doesn't rock the boat. They want somebody who gets the work done. They don't care if it's the best work. You don't get paid more if it's better work. They just want it done. And so I teach a module, a training module on documentation. And the first thing I do when I have clinicians that come to me that want to learn how to document compliant with Medicare guidelines is I take them to one or two lines in the CMS chapter 15 Medicare policy manual where I'm like, guys, do you realize Medicare tells us right here in black ink on a white background, the treatment note is not intended to justify medical necessity or the appropriateness of therapy. How many treatment notes are you writing today trying to justify medical necessity that's completely unnecessary? And Medicare is telling us. And then I show them Medicare's example of a progress report because every therapist I talk to wants to charge a reevaluation code for a progress report. I'm like, guys, it's not a reevaluation. I'm like, look, this is an example published by Medicare. It's four, three or four sentences, not even sentences, fragments that take up lines that covers a full month of therapy. It's a progress report. And most of the clinicians have never seen it while it's publicly available. They're shocked at how simple and how concise and how little information it actually contains. And so they're writing dissertations for a PhD when Medicare is simply happy with met or not met. You know, that's it. And so I feel like they're getting all this information, but it's not the right information. And if I was a consultant and I'm not, but if you hired me to come into a practice, the easiest thing in the world for me to be to say is, oh, you got to write more. You got to do this. You got to do that. But that, that's completely absent of the human who's actually doing the job, you know? And so I think the advantage that I have over a lot is I'm doing the job. I'm writing notes. All of my notes have been audited. I've been through Medicare audits, TPE audits, post-payment audits. Every other payer has been auditing us more and more over recent years. We pass them all. In fact, funny, I would say the fact that I pass an audit with 100% means that I'm doing too much. <laughs> I should have a 2 to 5% deficiency in there somewhere so I can find the barrier to say, okay, this one failed, but these passed. Now I know what I need to do. But I was also that kid in school that if it was a PT class and an 85% was a passing grade, if I got an 86, I did too much. Because that time could have been spent doing something more productive. So anyway. Yeah. It's interesting. All these folks talking about, I mean, again, you don't have to go far down the LinkedIn feed to see how many PTs or how, I should keep saying PTs, how many therapists seem to imply they're looking for, you know, tech sector jobs. The irony of all that, by the way, is that, you know, the tech sector on the whole has dropped, I think, 250,000 jobs have been cut in the tech sector because of the larger funding environment. And it's probably going to double over the next 18 months. It's just kind of how the macro economy works. So it's sort of this fool's errand to think that tech is somehow like transitioning to tech is going to somehow change you. Separately, there's this concept called ikigai, yeah. you know, and it's kind of like, you know, anybody Googling this is pretty straightforward. It's kind of like everybody wants to do what they love, but the reality is, is you have to be good at something. It'd be nice if you love it. The world has to need it and they need to want to pay for it. And healthcare actually, for the most part, you know, checks all those boxes. So the question is, how do you add more value within this industry? Because 
plain numbers, this is probably a different episode entirely, but people seem to think that moving to tech is going to save you somehow from a career standpoint, when in fact, the layoffs that have happened over the last 18 months are massive, hundreds of thousands of jobs. But more interestingly, if you want to take a positive spin on this, the amount of upside available in the healthcare world is far larger than the tech sector. Far larger. I mean, again, different episode, we'll do it at some point. But if you think you're going to move to like the tech sector and make 60, 70, 80 grand or whatever the number is, whatever your number is in your geography or whatever, the reality is is that there's far more money here. I mean, we're talking about dollars that you probably know better than me. But again, different episode for a different time. I just think my limited understanding of this so far is, is that I think PTs are better off spending more time figuring out how to add more value inside the practice, even if that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to stay with their current practice. But the more value you add to a practice owner, the easier that conversation is, you know? Yeah. I think it's a situation where, again, you, I'm putting myself in their shoes to the best of my ability. You feel so defeated. You feel, you know, just undervalued, underappreciated. You don't see a way out. The hole is so deep that you're in. You're just in such a deep hole that you can't see over that. And like you said, I go back to, you know, hard lesson learned. But I mean, over a lifetime, I realized that if I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be happy. Like happy people are happy. I've seen people that are happy with $10 in their pocket. I've seen people that are unhappy with $10 million. So, you know, it just happiness is independent of wealth and other things. So I try to, to find that happiness, find that joy in any situation. And if it's a bad situation and I can find happiness and joy, it's going to be amazing when it's a good situation. But yeah, I agree. I think there's a huge bright future in healthcare. I really do think that there are people doing incredible things. Just because you don't see those people or you're not aware of those people doesn't mean those people don't exist. But now with social media and these connections, I mean, we can connect to anybody. Just the fact that you and I can get together and connect like this with no history behind us is just incredible. Yeah. I know we're coming up on time here, but one of the controversial things I'll say, I I might lose some friends on this one, but uh, I believe it with all my heart across every industry, including healthcare. And that is that If your goal is to move out of whatever it is that you're doing now into something else that seems better solely for the money, it's not going to work. Like, in other words, if you can't make it where you are now, then moving to something else because you think that's going to make you more money is at best a short-term bet that has way more risk than you think. Instead, I think the biggest money to be made over the next 10 years, again, I'm just using the word money as maybe the metric of success, but let's interchange it with money, freedom, power, whatever your definition of success is, I really truly believe that the biggest wins over the next 10 years are going to be for the people that understand how to bridge the gap between online and offline. So as an example, for a therapist listening now, wondering like how to actually add more value to your practice, Tony, I'm making this up, but like the reality is, is most practice owners are doing very little in terms of email marketing, nurturing, or retargeting, bringing them back, they just sort of assume that they're going to come back. And I I see it across the data. You know, I was talking to one of our other clients last week and I was like looking at his data and then I called him and was like, hey, anecdotally, what percentage of your clients do you think are new every month? And he said 90%. I was like, yeah, well, that checks out. Turns out he's making pretty good money if that's the metric. But in the tech world, if you have more than 3% churn, 
we sort of write you off as a bad business because that means you've got to grow 36% three times 12 months just to keep your revenue flat. And so here we're talking about an industry where most practice owners are kind of like on autopilot. So anyway, we're articulating poorly, but I do think that the biggest money to be made is still in front of us at the individual therapist level and at the larger practice level. And I think it's learning skills like email marketing, SMS marketing, all the things that the direct-to-consumer world really learned over the last five years. And hell, if companies like Bombas can sell $90 six-packs of underwear and make millions, tens of millions of dollars on it, what we're talking about here is 10 times bigger, Yeah, (laughs) maybe 20 times bigger. So there's a pep talk in there somewhere. Just to expand on something you said, and this is a hard ship to turn. It's like turning the Titanic. I remember as, I wasn't even a therapist at the time. I was working as an aide inside a a hospital-owned outpatient clinic. And I would hear the therapist, and and I was a bit, I had been a business owner. I had already had an entrepreneurial background and started businesses. And I remember the therapist saying, at discharge, you did great and all these wonderful things they said to the patient. And then they're like, I hope we never see you again. And I was like, what? What did you just say? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that crushed me from a business perspective. But then I, I realized talking to patients, we think it's kind of funny. It's like, oh, we intend to say, I hope you don't get hurt. I hope you do great. I hope you, the patient perceives it as, they don't want me to fail. And then when I've seen patients come back, I've legitimately seen patients feel like a failure because they're coming back for a persistent chronic condition. And they felt like the therapist was expecting them to never come back again. You know, and and I've known patients that have gone to other clinics, to other businesses because they didn't want to go back, even though they liked that therapist, because they didn't want to let that therapist down. And when you talk about this idea, I've said forever, it's frustrating for most of us. We're in an insurance-based business model. The insurance company is my customer, period. You could disagree. Others could disagree. I get a paycheck from the insurance company. I get a 1099 from the insurance company. The insurance company is paying me to do the job to serve the service to the beneficiary, which is the patient. The patient hires the insurance company, the insurance company hires me. Okay. With that being said, and I don't know if this is where the mindset comes from, I've known for years, for 20 years, I've seen therapists who look at other therapists as a failure if that therapist doesn't discharge their patient in three to five visits, or if that patient has to come back for something else. They think that you're a bad therapist if you don't get them better in discharge as quick as possible, neglecting the fact that there's 20 other things that we could be doing, you know? And, and again, am I working to provide the best possible patient care experience, the best plan of care? That's where another conversation, we talk about hybrid models where we let the insurance pay for what the insurance was intended to pay for, but then we let the consumer pay for what the consumer ultimately wants. And that's where I think we make up the margin. That's where we bring therapists into, you know, 2024. And we do all of these things in understanding it's no longer just me serving the insurance company. It's me saying, I'm the therapist. I did the evaluation. These are the things that I believe are in your best interest to reach your objectives as the consumer. This is how we get there. 
you know, and, and then the consumer and you have that conversation to say, yeah, this is what I want to do or no, I just want what the insurance will pay for. No problem. There's a great therapist down the street. Let me connect you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and a revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy group practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo.